Now, I want to start with a story uh, today of a man who was walking in a storm. He was alone and he was lost, but in the midst of this storm and this journey, he comes across upon a monastery. And having no place to go, this poor man approaches the wooden desolate door of the old monastery and knocks. The door opens to a rather old, withered monk who greets the man and says, I'm the head monk of this monastery. How can I help you? The man asks for refuge overnight and is taken up into one of the guest bedrooms for the evening. During the night, this man decides to take a walk around the monastery grounds to pass the time as he had a hard time falling asleep, during which he came across an old degraded wooden door surrounded by golden material on the hinges. He attempts to open the door, but unfortunately he cannot. And so he goes back to sleep and in the morning asks the head monk what was behind the door that he found. At which point the monk says, "Uh, sorry, I can't tell you what's behind the door. Only monks get to see what's behind it. I apologize. And so the man says, all right, well, what do I need to do to become a monk? To which the head monk says, you must count every grand of sane on the mainland of Albion, where they were from, as well as every pebble, then come back to me. And so this young monk trainee goes out into the uh, different places to count the grains of sand and the petals. It takes him over 20 years, but he finally does everything. He almost loses his sanity, but he counts everything. He goes back to the monastery, and he tells the monk he has counted everything, and he tells him how much he counted, to which the monk says, very good, you're now a monk. Here is the key to the door. So this man is very excited. He's handed a very heavy wooden key, which remarkably fits right into the door. He opens it. And it reveals a silver door. He returns to the head monk and he gives him a silver key upon which he opens the silver door and he finds a golden door. At which point this monk is really upset. He spent 20 years like, why all these games? He goes back to the head monk, says, how many doors are left? I'm sick of it. He said, it's okay. I'll give you one more key. You found the last one. So he opens the uh, golden door. He finds a ruby door. He gets the last key. And so he goes to the monk and the monk says, it's the last one, I promise. Here's the ruby encrusted key. It's the finest vintage. And so the newly monk uh, returns to the ruby door. He opens the door and he gazes in absolute awe at the sight that he came across. It was worth all of those years of counting. And do you want to know what he saw? I can't tell you because you're not a monk. <laughs> <laughs> Now, uh, the reason I share that this morning is we're spending a few weeks uh, looking at this question, and starting off especially this morning, uh, what did Jesus come to do? Like, why did he come? What did he come to accomplish, and why did, he ma- why did God choose to send Jesus in the manner in which he sent him? What did Jesus come to do in the fullness of that? That's what we're going to be looking at these next couple of weeks. We're going to be in John chapter 2, 3, and 4. And in John's gospel, it starts in John chapter 1. It doesn't have a birth narrative of Jesus. It just basically says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. In other words, everything was created through God, by God through Jesus. That he has always existed. And then he comes in the form of a man. And in the first three, chapters 2 through 4, have to do with Jesus' time in the area of Cana. And it's this overarching theme of the old has come, the old is gone, the new has come. And so we're going to read today his first miracle in John chapter 2. And then John 3 and 4, the first two people that he really comes to and starts revealing himself to. Now, we say often here at New City Church that scripture is a unified story that leads to Jesus. 
And even Jesus' miracle that we're going to read this morning, nothing Jesus does happens in a vacuum. And so if you've been with us, especially as we went through Genesis, you're going to see how everything he does is for a reason. In fact, John chapter 20, it'll be on the screen towards the end of John's gospel. Here is why John said he wrote his gospel. He says this, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is why John wrote his book. And so if you have a Bible, will you turn with me to John chapter 2? If not, there's a black one around you. And if you do not own a Bible, you can take one of those home. It is our gift to you. John chapter 2. Today we are looking at Jesus' first miracle. So in John chapter 1, Jesus is on the scene. John the Baptist says, this is the one, the Messiah who everyone was talking about. I'm preparing the way for Jesus. And now Jesus' earthly ministry, he's around 30 years old, is going to begin. And it's going to begin with this, maybe for some of you, very familiar miracle. But there's a lot more going on there than you might realize. Now, if you've been with us through Genesis, um, a lot of times we're preaching through one, two, sometimes three chapters a week. This morning, I only have 11 verses. So we're going to go in a little bit, but it's going to be worth it. So John chapter two, verse one, it says this. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Jesus's mother was there and Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well. Now, it says here that it was the third day. This was the third day after Jesus called Philip and Nathanael as his disciples in John chapter 1. So, um, now this is a little confusing, but but track with me. The counting of days in John actually starts in John chapter 1 verse 19 with the testimony of John the Baptist about who Jesus is. And then it counts all the days leading up to the wedding and then it stops counting. So it's the third day from the end of John chapter 1 where Jesus calls Philip and Nathanael as his disciples, but it's actually the seventh day from John chapter 1 verse 19. Now, the point behind all of this is just to understand that the miracle we are going to read this morning comes on the seventh day from the days of the time counted. In other words, it is a seventh day event. It is also at the same time a third day event. Event. And if you're familiar with the Gospels at all, you know that Jesus does something quite significant towards the end of his life on the third day. So you have a seventh day miracle, which again in the Old Testament, you have the creation story and the seventh day God rested, completion is here, and a third day event happening at the same time in this miracle. Now, spoiler alert, again, most of you might be familiar with this already. The miracle we're going to read this morning is Jesus turning water into wine. Now, it's important to understand that in John chapter 1, John draws attention to the creation of the world and how Christ was there and how God created everything through Jesus. And of course, if you're familiar with the book of Genesis and the Genesis account, the creation story, the original creation story finds its climax in Genesis chapter 7 when God rested from his good creation. And so many scholars, I think, rightly point out that this miracle Jesus is going to perform here takes place on the seventh day, which was the Sabbath day of creation. In other words, a new creation has come. That's the significance of the days. In addition, we read multiple accounts of the gospel of Jesus performing many miracles on the gospel, sorry, on the Sabbath day in the gospels and in the gospel of John. Of course, certainly this was intentional because John wants us to see the powerful creator has come. Now, this, this, this uh, miracle doesn't happen on the Sabbath day, but it does happen on a seventh day from the days of the, ga- the, day, the, di- the seventh day from the time days started to be counted. Now, if you're confused, let me just say this. 
Scripture is meditation literature that you and I are to read and reread. And the more we read it, the more we pick up on these themes. And so you can have no idea about the significance of a third day or the seventh day as you read this story and still understand what's going on in the story. But it shows and reveals so much more layers to what Jesus is doing. And so in John chapter 2, verse 3, it says this. When they ran out of wine, again, they're at a ceremony, wedding, wedding celebration, Jesus' mother told him, they don't have any wine. Now, Mary, Jesus' mother, tells Jesus that they have run out of wine at this wedding celebration. Now, it's just important to understand that often in the ancient world, uh, wedding celebrations would typically last about a week long. Now, it's not necessarily to say that everybody stayed for all seven days, but again, you can't drive to your car, go for two hours, and drive home on the same day. It takes a little bit, of, it takes a while to travel to these things, and you were expected to be a good and hospitable host. And so, to run out of wine in the middle of the wedding celebration, week was a serious offense and would have brought a lot of shame to the groom and to the groom's family because traditionally they were in this culture the ones who kind of supplied and ran the wedding celebration. So this is a shameful thing to one out of wine. Now the question for us when you read this story is why does Mary bring this to Jesus's attention? Why is Mary concerned about the lack of wine and why does she tell Jesus? Well, again, it's helpful to know that Mary and Jesus, at this point in the story in John's gospel, uh, Jesus only has like five disciples. So he doesn't have his official 12 yet, but five of them have said yes. Five, Jesus and his five disciples are at this wedding. The fact that they were invited suggests that it was a wedding for a family member or at least a close family friend of Mary and Jesus. In fact, it is not impossible, impossible. In fact, it's probably likely that Mary had some responsibility for the organization of the wedding, which is why she is so concerned with her desire to fix the wine shortage. So, so they're not just like random guests there. They're either family members and Mary likely has something to do with the putting on of this wedding. At the same time, it's also helpful to know this, that Jesus has not yet performed any miracles. So it does not seem right to say that she is saying this to Jesus because she expects him to perform some sort of miracle. She doesn't have this. This is not an expectation of hers as she's going to Jesus. Again, much more likely in the historical context of what is happening here, Mary is probably a widow because Jesus' father Joseph, we don't hear about him at all in, in his earthly ministry. So he's very likely has passed away. Um, Jesus, again, was the firstborn of his family, so he was the oldest son. He was also a craftsman, and as the leading man of the family, she would often rely upon Jesus for support and to remedy various situations. Again, in the ancient world, everything legally came through the man. And so if you're a woman and your husband died, it would be through your sons or through other things when it comes to borrowing money and buying land and various legal aspects. He is the, essentially the leader of the household since their father has died. And so when there are problems, she often would have gone to Jesus to ask him to help her fix whatever would come. So this is why she goes to Jesus with a problem. She has a problem. She's used to relying and having Jesus help her fix her problem. And so she asked Jesus to fix the problem of the wine shortage. But then Jesus responds in a very peculiar way. His is, here's his response in verse 4. He says, what concern of yours to do with me, woman? Or sorry, what concern has this? of yours to do with me? Jesus asked, my hour has not yet come. Now, this seems like a pretty harsh rebuke from Jesus. Like, what are you asking me for, women? It's not my time. Now you're like, time for what? Like, why would he say this? It kind of reminds me, in terms of like his tone, what you, you, might, you might assume that he's being harsh. Uh, I have this really terrible habit of not saying goodbye on the phone. 
I'm one of those people, like, when the conversation's over, it's over. So I'll be, I'll very much be like, all right, click. Like, there's no, we don't just say goodbye. When you're, like, leaving a party or a gathering, like, some of those people are like, all right, we're going to leave. And then, like, 10 minutes later, they're still there. And it's like, no, when I'm leaving, see ya. Like, it's just goodbye. And so when Christina and I started dating, uh, she helped me a little bit, trained me. I, I learned very quickly, you can't just hang up on your girlfriend. But to me, I'm not hanging up. And so I remember one time in high school, I would have been a junior or senior because I had a cell phone, and I, my mom called me. I don't remember what we were talking about. And at the end of the conversation, I just hung up. And to me, I was like, I'm not hanging up. But I knew. Like, as soon as I, like, I didn't say bye, I just clicked it. And I was like, oh, this isn't going to be good. I knew she was going to take it as a hung up on her, and probably rightly so. She calls me back, and I was in trouble. Like, it was not pretty. Now, I didn't mean to be harsh, but she perceived it as harsh. And so that's what reminds me of this story. Now, the question is, it's helpful to understand that it is actually kind of hard for us to translate Jesus' Jesus's address from, to his mother into our language and expression. So again, it's Greek-speaking, translating this to Aegis, you know, English. I can't even say it. Um, because for us, calling someone a woman is a rather derogatory, derogatory term in our current culture today, even more so if it's your mother. Like to us, that just seems like that's not something you would do. But it's helpful to know that essentially, Jesus here is using a cultural expression of polite distance. So he's being polite with her, but he's not doing what she's asking him to do. He's essentially saying, again, what does your concern over the lack of wine have to do with me? Like, why is that my problem? Now, again, Mary is likely used to relying on Jesus for help and support. So it is not out of bounds at all for her to ask Jesus to help here. And yet again, again, we say meditation literature. So you have to read and reread to see this. But Jesus and John, the author of this gospel, have in mind more than what we read on the surface. Have in mind more in Jesus' response than what Mary is even actually asking. You see, Jesus' response here and his miracle is meant to be seen in light of the cross and why Jesus came. That is what his answer is referring to. Therefore, everything, even family ties, have to be subordinated to his mission. His mission over everything else was to redeem a people for himself. Meaning that even his own mother could no longer view Jesus as mothers would typically view their sons. In fact, it is helpful to know that everywhere, everywhere that Mary appears in the Gospels, after Jesus' birth story, and then there's a story when he's 12 years old, but from when he's like an adult, when his earthly ministry starts, every time she appears, Jesus is seemingly at pains to develop a distance between him and his mom. Now, she, like most of us, the point here is that she must come to him as they promised Messiah, that, that nobody has an inside track to Jesus, not even his mother. In fact, again, one story real quickly that, that kind of gets this point across. In Matthew chapter 12, we see that not even his own family gets special privileges to him. It says this, it'll be on the screen. While he was still speaking with the crowds, his mother and brothers were standing outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied to the one who was speaking to him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. 
And so going back to what's happening in this story at John chapter 2, you could actually argue that it is actually a kindness of Jesus to begin to shift and to change his relationship with his mom. That he can no longer be viewed as a typical son who has the firstborn responsibilities because he has the firstborn responsibilities, not just for his immediate family, but for the entire world. And so if you read this story, what you begin to find out is it was actually okay for me to hang out with my mom because I was becoming a young man of myself. That's, what's, that's the point. Now, now, here's the point. Here's what we see happening. That Jesus came to invite anyone who would do God's will into God's kingdom. Jesus came to invite Anyone, no matter who you are, your gender, your ethnicity, your socioeconomic status, how much power and authority you have at your job, anyone who would do God's will into God's kingdom. You know, it's interesting, you might not know this, but there are four times in the New Testament, four times, where the New Testament explicitly says what God's will for your life is. Now, we have all asked the question, God, what is your will for my life? God, what do you want me to do? Did you know four times, we're actually told explicitly four things, God's will for your life. The first happens in John chapter 6, verse 40. It'll be on the screen. It says this. This is Jesus speaking. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. In other words, Jesus came not to be one of many. He came because he is one of one. He didn't become, come to be a way to God. He came to be the way to God. And so the biggest question we all have is, what is God's will for your life? Well, the biggest will God has for you is that you would trust and submit yourself to Jesus Christ as Lord. That's his will. That's the first thing you can say. Believe in Jesus Christ. That is God's will for all of our lives, that we would trust and experience the grace and redemption he has for us. We also are told in 1 Thessalonians 4 that God's will is that you and I abstain from sexual sin. That we abstain from sexual sin. Now, in the scriptures, and you can put that one on the screen, in the scriptures, um, we are told repeatedly that, that God has designed sex to be a good thing between a man and a woman who have covenanted to themselves in a lifelong relationship of marriage. So there's no like, I'm married in my heart. There's, no, there's none of these things. Now, what's fascinating to me is that when you read the New Testament, there is a problem in the first century church that you have Jews who have become followers of Jesus, and then you had Gentiles who are non Jews. Now, the Jewish people were used to following the laws and the customs, and so the question was then for the Gentiles who were coming in to be part of the family of God, did they have to follow all the laws and the customs of the Jewish people? Now, the apostles came to the answer of no, because Jesus redeems you, not following laws and customs. And yet every single time the question is raised is what should the Gentiles do? They are always told to abstain from sexual sin. It is a big deal in the New Testament because, again, human beings are created in the image of God. And then when we sin sexually, not only dishonoring God, but we're dishonoring his little image bearers. So he says, abstain from sexual sin. God, honor God sexually. We're also told to give thanks in everything in 1 Thessalonians 5, to be a thankful people and then lastly, to submit in doing right. And First Peter chapter 4. So four things. Believe in Jesus, honor people sexually, be a thankful person, and submit in doing right. In other words, honor God in response to the grace that he has given you. Honor him with your lives. And what we see happening, even in Jesus' first miracle, is that Jesus came to invite anyone, not just his family, not just his disciples, but anyone who would do the will of God into God's kingdom. And so Jesus came to dwell among us, to usher in a new covenant, and to invite us into the kingdom of God through him. In other words, you could say Jesus is an equal opportunity inviter, and he's also an equal opportunity offender, right? There are no exceptions, and there is no special or preferential treatment. 
for no matter who you are, your background, your family history. We all come to God in the same posture, in need of his grace and in need of his mercy. And so again, Jesus responds to his mother, says so he's not going to do it. But then he says, his hour has not yet come. Now, that's kind of kind of a confusing thing, right? Like she didn't, like we're talking about your hour. What does that have to do with what she's asking you to do? Again, that's the reason for his distant response to his mom is that his hour has not yet come. The question is, what does that even mean? Again, it's helpful to know as you read John and then you reread John, you see that hour in John refers to his death on the cross. So again, she's asking him to help with the wine, but he's talking about his death on the cross. How does that make any sense? Right? Again, Jesus often says that his hour is not yet. So many times in the Gospels, he says that his hour is not yet. Now, this changes in John chapter 12, in John's gospel, when Jesus is close to his death and he begins to engage with the Gentiles. He begins to invite the Gentiles into his kingdom and say, I didn't just come for the Jews, I came for the whole world. And so that point forward, from John chapter 12 forward, his hour is said to be arrived or about to arrive. But at this point, he's beginning his earthly ministry. It is not time for his glory to be revealed. Now, again, the question is, how then are Jesus' words a response to Mary? Because she's not asking about his glory. She's just asking to fix a problem, to help the embarrassment of running out of wine at a wedding. But yet he replies, his hour has not yet come. Again, it is typical for Jesus to detect more than just more symbolism than his counterparts in visions when they ask him questions. This is partially why some of his responses are so pithy, because he says things that are even that even the people he's talking to don't even realize. Now we'll see this as well in John chapter three and in John chapter four, when he's interacting with people and they're asking him questions about the Messiah, and he's answering them in ways that they don't fully understand because he's answering them in an even greater way than what they're actually even talking about. And so here, it is likely that John, the author of this gospel, sees a connection where Jesus is identified as the messianic bridegroom. In fact, he's actually called this in John the Baptist, that Jesus is the bride, or sorry, the groom, and the church is his bride. And so as such, if Jesus is the groom for his people, then he will supply all the wine that is needed for his messianic banquet. He will supply all the life that is needed for those that are welcomed into God's party. But his hour to do so, his hour to supply the wine for all of his guests has not come yet. Now again, scripture is meditation literature. So if you're like, how am I supposed to get all of that from four verses? Just know, hey, I'm not that smart either. I just read like smart people and that's what they say. And I'm like, that sounds, that sounds like a plan. No, but it's, it's meditation literature. So you read and reread. And so then you begin to pick up. Here's what he means by hour. And here's how this talks about the cross and how even in John chapter three, that Jesus is the groom. And so he is going to supply the wine, the glory for his people, but it's not time for that yet. Even though Mary's asking about this specific wedding, he's talking about more than even she realizes. So he has this kind of weird response. But then her response is also kind of weird. Verse five, she then says this, do whatever he tells you, his mother told the servants. So Jesus kind of says, actually, it's not ready for that yet. But then in response, Mary kind of shakes off his response and still trusts that Jesus will figure out a solution, right? And again, what you also see repeated in the gospels where people are rewarded for persistently seeking Jesus for help. So there are times, even in John's gospel, there's a story about it in John chapter 4, and there's a story about it in John chapter 11, where somebody asks Jesus initially for help, and then he initially refuses their request for assistance, but they keep asking, and then he proceeds to help in his own way after a further demonstration of faith. So he kind of says, like, 
I'm not going to do it. But his mom keeps asking. And then he is going to do something even greater than she could even ask. But I, I just want to say this as a side note. I think this is an opportunity for us to sit and reflect on this reality. That God's silence may be an invitation. God's silence to you and your requests and things that you've asked for and things that you want him to do actually might be an invitation. If you were with us when we were going through the book of Genesis, we saw this time and time again where there are many stories where we are meant to wonder, what if this person... Well, what if they had repented for what they had done? And what if, they, what if they had asked God for help? We saw this with Adam and Eve. We saw this with Cain and Abel. We see this multiple times where they do something they're not supposed to do. And instead of repenting, they hide their sin and they run from God. And we're supposed to ask ourselves, but what if they did it? What would God have done if they had repented? Because at the same time, there are many examples in the Old Testament and the New where people do something God explicitly told them not to do. They then repent and he gives them grace. And we also see in the scriptures that God is rewarding those who persistently are in faith. And so here, just personal experience and, and, and being a pastor, here's what I see. Sometimes we get really frustrated with God for him not doing something good that we want, like not selfish, not self-serving, but like would honor him or would care for people. And we're really frustrated with God because we say, well, we've asked God to do something and he hasn't moved. And what has really happened is we've prayed about it once. Every once in a while before we go to sleep, we say, hey, God can do this. And that's it. Like we haven't actually sought him. We haven't prayed. We haven't fasted. We haven't told other people to pray with us. I think sometimes God wants to move and he wants to answer your prayer, but he doesn't want to just answer it for you. He wants the people in your life to see his goodness and his grace and his mercy. And so I just want to say, man, if there's something in your life that you're frustrated with, that you wish God would move from, I'm not saying it's going to happen if you do X, Y, and Z, but I would just ask yourself and myself, am I actually using this as an invitation to seek the Lord or am I just upset because I asked once and he didn't do what I wanted when I wanted to do it? We see repeatedly in the Gospels that his silence is actually an invitation for us to wrestle with him, to be angry with him, and to ask him to move. And so here he responds to his mom. He's actually going to, she says, well, help, do whatever he says, trust him, follow him, listen to him. And so here's his response, verse 6. Now, six stone water jars have been set there for Jewish purification. Each contained 20 or 30 gallons. So at this wedding celebration, there's these six water jars totaling, let's say, about 150 gallons in total. Now, these were there for ceremonial and ritual washing according to Jewish laws. And so you would take water and you, do, you would do certain hand washings and various things to make sure you were pure and you were kosher and you were undefiled. And so these water jugs were for ceremonial purposes. Now, there's about 150 gallons if you add all of these jars up, which is, by the way, we're gonna, he's going to turn these into wine. We'll see in a second. But just so you know, if you're trying to like calculate how much that is, that's about 1,600 cans of beer, okay? That's how much it is. Maybe to make it more practical, in order to eat, drink all of that uh, that he's going to use, you'd have to drink four and a half beers a day. So this is a lot of wine that Jesus is going to make. Now, some people will say, well, yeah, but it was old in the ancient world. It was a lot less watered down than it was now. So it's not the same as like alcohol today. 1,600 cans of beer. So yeah, yes, scripture condemns drunkenness. But Jesus' first miracle is going to be turning a water into a ton of wine. And some of you are like, well, we should have come to this church sooner, right? Now that's just, that's, that was its first miracle. So this is what I mean. it's going to be a par day, okay? Verse seven, here's what it says. Jesus says this, fill the jars with water, Jesus told them. So they filled them to the brim. 
Then he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the head waiter. And they did. Now, it's debating what's going on here. I think the, to, to best understand what Jesus is doing here, here's what I think is going on. That these are big water jars and they are filled to the absolute brim. Now, up until this point, these water jars were only ever used for ceremonial washing. So you would never put anything else in these jars other than water. You would not store anything else in them because they had a specific purpose. Likely, again, likely he's going to turn this water into wine, likely indicating for us as readers that the ceremonial purification is completely fulfilled in Jesus. And the new order that he is ushering in, symbolized by new wine, can now be drawn from. Again, you weren't supposed to put wine in, or other substances in the water jugs meant for purification. Yet Jesus is using these same purification jugs to say, I'm the one that's going to make people clean. That you come and take from me, and that is how you are purified. And so he, he does it. They, they take the water. They put it in the jugs. He fills it up, and he takes a sample to the head waiter. It says this, verse 9. When the head waiter tasted the water after it had become wine, he did not know where it came from. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew, he called the groom and told him, everyone sets out the fine wine first, then after people are drunk, the inferior. But you have kept the fine wine until now. So the, the head waiter, so you can essentially think like the wedding coordinator uh, in modern terms. He tastes the new wine that was getting ready to be served. He then calls the groom over because, again, the groom and his family are responsible for the wedding celebration. And he is astonished. He's like, this is the best stuff I have ever tasted in my life. Usually by now, people bring out the cheap stuff because people don't really know what's going on. But you have saved even the best for now. Again, the point that we're meant to see here is that what Jesus has made is unqualifiedly superior, which, of course, everything that Jesus does and everything tied to the new age is. Put another way, what we see happening in this story is that Jesus came to offer what nothing else can. What no one else can, what nothing else can, what you can get from, get from nowhere else. <laughs> in fact, in John chapter 10, one of Jesus' well-known sayings in the book of John, he says this, I have come so that they might have life and have it to the full. He has come to offer us what we can get nowhere else. And this is the gospel, that Jesus came in the form of a man, lived a life you and I could not live, deserved to die. He takes the death on the cross. He takes the wrath of God that we deserve. He resurrects three days later so that, to show us his superiority and his power over death and sin so that all of us, because of his sacrifice, who trust and follow and believe in him, can taste and experience the goodness of God. It's better than anything else, and Jesus has come to offer it. Again, this is not the best option of many. This is the best, and it is the only one. But it also is the best deal for us. Like, I don't know. I mean, you, I, I do know. You cannot, from a human perspective, come up with a better idea of how for us to receive the grace and forgiveness of God as it has nothing to do with us and all to do with him. He's not one of many. He is one of one. Now, at this point... I think this, this, to, this to me brings up to a story that many of you might be familiar with of the blind man and the elephant or the blind men and the elephant. And it's an ancient fable of six blind men who visit the palace of a Raja, which is like a prince, and they encounter an elephant for the first time. And the point of the story is to say, here are all the religions, they're different, but they're all leading to the same place, right? And so each blind man, as they touch this animal for the first time, they announce their discover, discoveries. The, the first blind man touches the side of the elephant and says, how smooth an elephant is like a wall. 
The second blind man puts out his hand and he touches the trunk of the elephant. He says, how round, an elephant is like a snake. The third man put out his hand and he touches the tusk of the elephant. He says, how sharp, an elephant is like a spear. The fourth blind man puts out his hand and he touches the leg of the elephant. He says, how tall, an elephant is like a tree. The fifth blind man reaches out his hand. He touches the ear of the elephant. He says, how flat, or how wide, rather. An elephant is like a fan. Uh, the sixth blind man puts out his hand. He touches the tail of the elephant. He says, how thin. An elephant is like a rope. And then an argument ensues. Each blind man uh, are saying that his own, or thinking his own perception of the elephant is correct. At which point, the rajah is awakened by all the commotion. And he says, uh, enough. He says, the elephant is a big animal. He says, each man touched only one part. You must put all the parts together to find out what an elephant is like. Now, it sounds good in theory. There are two glaring issues with this illustration. One, the only way to know the truth of an elephant is if you can actually see it. He can only tell them they're wrong because he can actually see it. So you and I can only say that um, all religions lead the same to the same ways, for example, if we claim to have superior knowledge that no one else can. The other problem with this story is that each blind man's truth was wrong. An elephant is not a fan. It is not a spear. It is not a snake. It is a ginormous elephant. I mean, it's an animal. It weighs two tons. I mean, it's, it is not at all. Uh, everything that they thought it was, they were living their truth and all their truths were wrong. They were wrong. The elephant was something unlike anything else they had ever perceived. And only the rajah could tell them what it was because only he could actually see it. Jesus has come not to be one of many, but to be one of one who claims that he has existed for, from out time, from the beginning of creation. Everything in the world was created through him. And therefore, he has the authority to say, I am the one who is coming to redeem you. You cannot do it on your that's what this wedding celebration, this miracle is supposed to represent. And in verse 11, the last verse we'll read, it says this. Jesus did this, right? The turning of water into wine, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee. He revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. So, so in the gospels, again, Jesus always does his miracles for a reason. Now, you don't have to be familiar with the Old Testament and new wine and the things that we talk about to see this is really cool, but it becomes so much more clearer if you have some understanding. Again, they are not random. They are not just to show people how powerful he is and all the cool tricks that he can do. Their point is to reveal who he is and what he came to do. Jesus' miracles are for a reason to reveal who he is and what he came to do. And so it is with his very first miracle as well. Here in this miracle, Jesus produces an overabundance of the highest possible quality of wine, showing us that his glory will never run out. And his first disciples begin to believe in him, that there is something different about this man. So again, what did Jesus come to do? Here's what John chapter 2 is showing us, that Jesus came to give new life to those who are empty. Jesus came to give new life to those who are empty, who couldn't do it on their own, who couldn't figure things out on their own, who couldn't earn it. And so I, I want to end by just uh, addressing two different types of people, okay? First, for those who are not yet followers of Jesus, and secondly, for those of us who are. If you do not know why Jesus came, you need to know why. 
He didn't came to be just a moral leader, although he was. He didn't come just to show us how to love people, although he did that. He came explicitly to redeem a people to himself. For anyone who cannot earn it on their own, who cannot uh, make it on their own, who have all fallen sin and fallen short of the glory of God, Jesus came to redeem you. Not to be one of many or a cool, cool leader, but to save those who are lost. And if you're broken and empty, if you're thinking, well, that sounds good, but I need to come to church a few more times. Maybe we probably need to pray a few more prayers. The answer is no. Today, as it says in Romans, while we were still sinners, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He came to give you life where you could not find it on your own. And listen, you can experience it today. Trust and follow him today. And I would also say this, for those of us that are followers of Jesus, um, would we not let the message of salvation become normal, boring, and not lead us to action? So when I asked the question this, this morning, uh, what did Jesus come to do? It's easy. Like, well, he came to save us. That's amazing. Like, that's stinking amazing. But we become so used to it that we forget the glory of freedom and mercy that you and I know and experience in Jesus. So, so I'm going to end with a challenge today. Um, I'm going to push some of my, I, for those, this is for those who are followers of Jesus and call New City Church home. So if you're not one of those things, if you're not sure about Jesus, or you're just checking us out, listen in, but I'm not, this is not for you. Okay. This is for our people. Um, the reality of the gospel and how it should move us to action. Uh, infighting happens in churches when our preferences become more important than the mission. Right? When we, when the style, how loud the music is or the, the, what the carpet color should be like. When our preferences, I'm not saying we shouldn't, we can't have preferences, but when our preferences become so important to us that they overshadow the mission, that's where infighting and splits happen in churches. Now, by the grace of God, New City has had very little of that in our history. Like for the, our mission is that we will meet Jesus and grow in relationship with him. We all have preferences, but we haven't had a lot of like issues of like, well, I want to do things this way. And if we don't, I'm leaving. But one of the things that I have heard very often in this almost seven years that New City has been around is one of these two statements. One, we love New City because, or if someone is new, we are looking for a smaller church to plug into. We love, I love New City because how small it is, or I love New City, or I'm, I'm interested in New City because I'm looking for a smaller church to plug into. Now, now he, please hear me. I have heard that so many times that I promise I am not thinking about you. So like, I said it to him last week. I don't, even, I don't know who said it to me, okay? I promise. And the second thing I want to say here is this. I understand and I actually applaud that sentiment because what you're saying is you want to be a part of a community who knows you, that is wise and that is good. You want to be in, connected with community. That is a good thing. That's wise and mature and I applaud that. Uh, that's part of the reason why we highly recommend community groups. You can text NCC groups, all one word to 97,000 or in the back of the connect card, just check groups if you're not in one so you actually experience life together beyond just a Sunday morning. Um, so that's wise and mature. That, that, that being said that, that, that's out of the way. I just want to address that statement, okay? Um, here's what I know. We all want a smaller church or we all want a church that can fit into one service until it's one of our lifelong best friends who we have prayed for for almost 20 years decides to show up on a Sunday. If that were to happen to you, I think you would say, you know what? I wouldn't mind if, if we needed to make a little bit more room. Or we all want a tight-knit community until it's our estranged son or daughter or maybe not even estranged, but a family member who walked away from the faith years ago. And let's say for some reason, they decide to give God one more chance. Then I would imagine, you know what? You say, you know what? Two services, whatever it takes. 
Or, right, we, we all want to know everyone in the church until we have a parent or we have a grandparent who is nearing the end of their life. And you are desperate for them to know the saving power of Jesus. Then our preferences are no longer as important as just one more. Now, I just want to say all the examples that I just shared with you are personal examples of my life. And I bet you have people that you are thinking in those examples as well. And so can I just say as I end this morning to those of us that are followers of Jesus today, uh, you have every single one of those examples in your school or in your workplace or in your friend group. You know somebody's answer to prayer where you live, where you work, and where you operate. And so listen, if, we, if you call New City Church home, would we be a people who take seriously the call of Jesus to go make disciples, baptize them, and invite them into the family of God? Would our preferences not come across or not overshadow the fact that God has redeemed you and saved you from hell so that you can experience eternity with him and he wants to use you to do that in somebody else's life? Jesus came to give new life to those who are empty and he's invited us along into that mission.